And so let me first invite you to um, bow your heads and we'll have this uh, prayer for illumination. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we continue through the letter of Paul to the Romans, we have gotten well into chapter 2, and tonight we're doing 2, verses 17 through 29. Listen to the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the great, greatest advances in our civilization in recent times has come from the invention and use of immunizations. Getting a shot or series of shots protects you from diseases that used to afflict and kill, in fact, hundreds of thousands of people, even in the developed world. Um, Let's see, we can think of, I'm probably not even listing all of them, but there are inoculations, there are immunizations for measles, for smallpox, for polio, uh, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, I think diphtheria, tons of terrible diseases. Well, some are more terrible than others, of course. Um, And... These diseases that I just mentioned have been nearly wiped out in much of the world because of these inoculations, these immunizations. That's a great development. It has spared so many people suffering and it has saved so many lives. Uh, Interestingly, the chickenpox vaccine is recent enough that I missed it as a child. It didn't exist then. So I got to go through that lovely rite of passage of having the chickenpox when I was 10 years old. Uh, That was very uncomfortable, but fortunately it wasn't too serious. Now... We all know that for an immunization to be effective, it has to be real. If you get a shot of glucose or saline solution for one of these diseases, it will do nothing to stop a terrible disease from afflicting you or even killing you. 
And relying on those things, placebos, for example, shows really a fatal level of delusion. They cannot possibly protect you or save you. Now, if vaccines had existed in the time of Paul, he might have used them to educate his readers about what would serve as a true and a false immunization against sin and its dire consequences. In chapter 2, Paul sets out his warnings against those who would assume the moral high ground for himself or herself. Now, Paul's words can certainly apply to anyone, but he especially had his fellow Jews in mind uh, when they were guilty of self-righteousness. And this is implicitly the case in the previous passage that uh, I discussed last week, verses 1 to 16. The focus is made more explicit in these verses, 17 to 29. Paul here is uh, addressing a hypothetical Jewish dialogue partner. And he accuses him of failing to live in a way that is consistent with the great privileges that he enjoys as a Jew. And specifically, while he has the circumcision and the law, the Jew does, he is not living as if he has the true circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, and he is not obeying the law, even though he knows the law. And this brings into disrepute the very name of God among the Gentiles. Now, it's important to remember, because we know Paul had a positive feeling towards the church in in, uh, Rome, that Paul is engaging here, and he's engaging a hypothetical dialogue partner, as I said, and that is a rhetorical device. It's part of his general presentation of the gospel and the need of humanity for it. And he's expressing his thoughts in his way because of his great esteem for his audience. He's not implying that they are guilty of the presumption of which he accuses his dialogue partner, his hypothetical dialogue partner. And so chapter 2, as a whole, can be considered really sort of an inner Jewish debate between a Jew like Paul, who follows the Messiah and has this more holistic understanding, spiritual understanding of the law, and a Jew who tries to be righteous without following the Messiah and whose heart has not been changed by the power of the Spirit. And so... That is a good thing to remember as we discuss these verses. Uh, I should mention that uh, this passage, 17 to 29, is divided up into two discrete parts. The first part is 17 through 24. And I'll just give a brief summary of that before going um, into a little more detail in some of the uh, verses. Uh, In verses 17 to 18, Paul lists five privileges that the one who calls himself a Jew claims to enjoy it. And we have, um, okay, the Jew, the one who calls himself a Jew, relies upon the law, that's a privilege. Two, he brags about his relationship with God. Three, he knows God's will. Uh, Four, he is able to approve what is superior. He has that judgment, that discernment. And five, he is instructed by the law. So those are five unique privileges that a Jew would have as opposed to a Gentile. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul lists the things that a Jew claims he can do because of these privileges. Another um, another few things. Uh, one, he can guide the blind. That makes sense. The blind would be the Gentile who doesn't know the law. He can act as a light for those in darkness, which is essentially the same thing. He can instruct the foolish. 
And he can teach infants, all because he has the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But then in verses 21 through 23, Paul remarks on the inconsistency, the terrible inconsistency between these privileges and what the Jew claims he can do on the one hand and his actual behavior on the other. And then in uh, verse 24, Paul brings that section to an end with a scriptural quotation to show that such behavior dishonors God. And there is so much we can learn from this. But I'll just try to lift up a few things for us tonight. Um, Considering verses 17 and 18, um, what does it mean to call oneself a Jew? And there are two possibilities. They both could be true at the same time, but one's more important, I think, than the other. One is you could be somebody who is a Judean. You live in that region. You trace your ancestry back to that place, wherever it is. And that makes sense. I mean, um, you all were born in Florida, so you know you could always be considered Floridians. You were all born in Florida, right? All right. Um, you know, like it or not, I'm always going to be a New Yorker because I was born in New York. And similarly, there are people who can trace their backgrounds to Judea. So there's that. But it's more important, I think, that people who would call themselves Jews have the law. They understand themselves as being under the law of Moses. That is an inescapable part of their identity as well. And so that takes care of those who consider themselves or call themselves to be Jews. Um, Now... The Jewish privileges alluded to here are possession of the law and a special relationship with God. And indeed, I think Christians may feel the same way in the sense that, well, we belong to the church and we have a special relationship with God through Christ. But getting back to the Jews, um, it's important to remember that relying upon the law and God's revelation through it are good things. Paul is not saying that it's a bad thing to know about the law and to rely upon the revelation of God, not at all. It was legitimate and praiseworthy for the people of Israel to do so. Um, Jewish delight in the law is expressed in, this is what I wanted to lift up, in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And so what a wonderful sort of a hymn of praise that is to the law. And that's how the law was supposed to be. It was supposed to be life-giving. It was supposed to be a beautiful thing. Uh, It was supposed to be a treasure. And the problem in Israel at the time of Christ was by then the law had not acted in that way. And that's not the fault of the law. The law is the law. It's always good. It's always perfect. But it was not acting that way in the lives of the people. And Jesus and Paul himself would place a responsibility for that on those who were given the privilege of interpreting and expounding upon the law, those who set the rules, those who explained the law. They were doing it in a way that the law became just legalistic and oppressive. And so much of that concern uh, animates Paul's writing, not just in Romans, but 
in so much of his work. So that takes care of the law briefly. Uh, but there's also the relationship with God to be able to boast in God, which is something that the Jews liked to do, that they could do. It was a great privilege. Uh, the creator of the world is the God of Israel, and Israel is his people. And so to boast in, the, to boast in God is not only legitimate, but it's something that the people of Israel were actually called to do. The prophet Jeremiah charged the people of Israel... Hear this. This is what Jeremiah wrote. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. And so Paul is not criticizing his hypothetical Jewish dialogue partner for honoring the law and boasting in the Lord. But he is saying, if you do that, you have to live a life in accordance with that. And that's what's missing. Um, And again, I think Paul's message could apply to those of us in the church, too. Um, It is a good thing to have the Bible. It's a wonderful thing to have the Bible. It is also a wonderful thing to boast of our relationship with Jesus Christ, to talk about how wonderful that is. But again, those things can be misused, just as the law and the relationship with Israel's God were misused um, in that time 2,000 years ago. We can make the Bible into just something that really is not living but dead, something that is simply a manual of rules and can be oppressive for people, rather than something that gives us joy in life. And similarly, what does it mean to boast in Christ? I mean, the good thing is to talk about how wonderful Jesus is and what a difference he's made in your life. But boasting in the sense of thinking that you're better than somebody else because you're a Christian and that person is not, that's the wrong way to boast. And I think Paul would warn against that just as much as he warns against um, what some of the Jews were doing at that time. And there's a little bit more I could say about those verses, but I would like to move on. I'm going to talk a little bit about verses 19 and 20. Uh, All right, in 19 and 20, Paul lists things that his dialogue partner and those whom he represents claim they do because of their privileges. All right, and again, let me just list those. Um, The Jew can be a guide for the blind, those who do not know the law. A Jew can be... A light for those who are in the dark, who are in the dark. And that was a role that Israel was intended to have in relation to the Gentiles. And that's specifically mentioned in Isaiah 42 6 and 49 6. And I think it's also implied back in Genesis 12, where it was said by the Lord that the descendants of Abraham would bless the whole world. So there would be a specific discrete people set out, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, but they would also serve to bless the whole world. Um, Also, the privilege or the act of the Jew is to be the instructor of the foolish, one who not only informs, but disciplines and corrects, and four, to be a teacher of little children, all because he has in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, certainly, Jews had the potential to do all these things because 
of their possession of the law. They had that great advantage. And nowhere is that more clearly affirmed, uh, at least according to this commentary by Cruz that I'm relying on, in uh, Psalm 119, which describes the function of the law in providing understanding and guidance for living. And that's perhaps best summed up by these words, the unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. And then we move, excuse me. And then we move on to some very challenging uh, sentences or verses, verses 21 through 24. And here Paul is accusing his dialogue partner essentially of, well, failing to uphold the law, failing to show that he has a relationship with God. And in fact, he is accusing him of hypocrisy. Verse 21 starts by saying, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And indeed, there certainly were incidences of theft among the Jews as as among the Gentiles. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Um, And of course, we know that that happened too. Uh, A more puzzling question Uh, at least according to the research I did, was this, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And even to this day, scholars have disagreed about what that means. I mean, was there really a lot of temple robbery going on? There was really not much evidence of that. And this is me speaking here. I'm not, you know, a great scholar like some of these um, folks that I've relied on. But Jesus, remember, when he cleansed the temple, referred to the temple being turned into a den of thieves, by the temple authorities. They were allowing things to go on in the temple that really represented theft. There was an, or it was at least an impermissible mixing of the commercial world with the spiritual world. It could be that Paul had that in mind. Um, so that was obviously a problem of some kind. Isn't it interesting that, again, These words that were applied to the Jews 2,000 years ago can easily be applied to us today. I mean, I don't know of any Christians who would publicly affirm that it's good to steal. But obviously we know that there are people who call themselves Christians who steal. Um, We know that there are Christians who commit adultery, even though I don't know of any Christian who affirms that as a good thing. Um, We say we abhor idols, but what happens with some of kind of what I would call Christianity Incorporated. Um, you know, you look at pastors who live very well. Um, they basically live like millionaires. Not too many, but there are some. Um, you look at churches that become like business empires that are about commerce. Um, and there are so many examples of that, too. Um, the idols of money and worldly success infect the church just as much as they infect the world. And so it's amazing how little things seem to change over these years. Paul then says in 23, verse 23, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And so it would be, it seems that Paul is saying there is a special level of sin or dishonor when someone who should know better, who should know the law of God, contravenes it. And similarly, someone who is supposed to know Jesus Christ 
is especially dishonoring what Christ did for us on the cross by not acting as Christ would have us act. And in verse 24, very gravely, um, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And certainly, I mean, we just know this from social media. And of course, I think we would have known it before the advent of social media too. How many atheists and non-Christians say the worst things about the Christian faith because of the behavior of some Christians? They blaspheme the name of God because of the behavior of some of the followers of God. So it's just astounding to me how how much Paul is writing in a specific context, and yet his words, again, really speak to us today. Now, verses um, 25 through 29 talk about circumcision and what that means. And I'm so sorry Tommy couldn't hear, be here tonight because he loves hearing about circumcision. But, um, you know, Beth, I will have this recording you know, up on the Internet, so make sure that you know, it gets forwarded to him. Um, Paul says, circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Um, And he goes on, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one is a Jew who is merely... I'm sorry, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And, you know, in those last words, his praise is not from man, but from God, we really do hear the words of Jesus Christ, because he often sets up a conflict between the praise of man and the praise of God. If you are out to get the praise of man then that is what you will have, but you will not have the praise of God. And so often to do the to do the work of God and to receive the praise of God means that you will never get the praise of man. But going back into the whole thing about the circumcision, Paul is not arguing against circumcision. Um, and we know, of course, in Galatians, it sounds like he kind of is. When we look at Galatians, we looked at that um, a few years ago. But he really isn't. He's not prohibiting it to anybody. But he is saying that the physical act of circumcision does not save one. It does not prove that one is doing what needs to be done to be in the favor of God. And so it might as well be not done at all. It becomes useless. Now, if we were to look at our situation today as Christians, well, we don't have the circumcision which I'm sure most people are relieved about, but we do have the sacraments. We have the two sacraments, uh, baptism and communion, and those are important to partake of, and Paul certainly would not argue against them. I'm not arguing against them. But imagine that someone is baptized, either as an infant or as an adult, and someone partakes of communion, but they act like anybody else in the world. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they slander. They do all sorts of terrible things. Um, those sacraments are useless. And I'm going to bring up you know, one of my movie in, um, illustrations once again. And unfortunately, I guess it's kind of lost on you guys. 
but maybe somebody listening to this will understand. It's the Godfather. And again, let me just see. Did, any, who, did anybody here see the Godfather? Okay, you two did. That's good. We're, we're doing well here. But I still remember it was so chilling. So chilling. Near the, it was getting near the end of the first Godfather movie. And um, let's see, Michael Corleone's um, nephew was being baptized. And it was a beautiful elaborate Latin service, you know, like they um, used to have the Latin Mass in the Catholic Church, and so there was this very, you know, ornate service of baptism for that little child. And at the same time that the words in Latin are being said, that the child is being baptized, and that Michael Corleone is the the godfather, the godfather of the child, is uh, saying that he renounces evil and the works of Satan, what's going on in his orders, there are scenes of various enemies of the Corleone family being murdered, being shot in various um, creative ways, um, in all sorts of circumstances. And that, that juxtaposition is it is really chilling. I mean, it's one of, I think it's one of the best scenes ever in cinema. Um, but obviously, I think we would probably take away from that scene that, oh, gee, uh, Michael Corleone saying that he renounces evil in the works of the devil and participating in this baptism service uh, that in itself really doesn't show that he has a heart for God. I don't think somebody who has a heart for God would do the things that the Godfather did. And similarly, for anyone who um, just relies on the sacraments as the means of grace and doesn't show a changed life is missing the point. Paul goes on to say that there are those, and I think here he's thinking about the, the Gentile Christians, or at least the God-fearers, who did not undergo circumcision but still follow the Messiah, what truly is important is having God in your heart, and that's going to be Jesus Christ, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is certainly possible that someone, for whatever reason, has not been baptized, someone has not taken communion, but if they have the Lord in their heart, it will be as if they have taken those things. They have been baptized, and they have had communion. And the presence of God in their hearts and souls is infinitely more valuable than the outward observation of the rituals of our faith. And that is it's a great lesson from Paul. Um, he's emphasizing it for the Jews then. Um, he's saying circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and so it is for us. We too, actually, I said that we don't have to undergo circumcision, but I I wasn't actually right about that. We do, but we undergo a circumcision of the heart. And that shows that we are walking with the Lord much more than any outward observance. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that people get a free pass just to ignore these things like baptism and communion and church observance. That doesn't mean that. But it does mean we cannot rely on those outward things in order to be saved and Again, this is a strong message from Paul, and it is something that is also, um, how can I say this, reflected by much of the writings of the early church leaders, the church fathers. And for a time in the history of the church, it became obscured, but this whole idea of righteousness that is imparted or imputed um, by Jesus Christ And the Spirit is something that is rediscovered, I think, and lifted up, especially in the time of Martin Luther. Um, It didn't entirely vanish in the medieval period, I don't want to say that, 
but it did seem to become obscured, and so we can be thankful for teachers like Luther and Calvin and others from that era who rediscovered that wonderful truth. And it's a truth that we always have to be reminded, though, of, uh, because there is always the temptation to think that we are saved by various works, even good works, even observances of our faith, when it is faith itself that is given to us by God, faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that is what saves. And Paul is going to be returning to that theme over and over again in this lesson. And so, having said that, I am so uh, blessed and privileged to offer all of this to you tonight in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.